Welcome to Heroic Hearts Podcast, where we will explore the heroic journeys of St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese of Lisieux to heal, inspire, and re-enchant our own hearts. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Heroic Hearts. In this episode, Walter and I will discuss Joan's preparations for war, how she gets her army into fighting and praying shape, and their first contact with the enemy. The winds of war are changing for France under Joan's brave leadership. So let's go. Well, hello and welcome to all the listeners of the Heroics Heroic Hearts podcast. And hello to you, Walter. Hello, Amy. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, but I think we should warn our readers that you've been a little under the weather this week. Oh, yes, I have, <laughs> but I will. I'm making it. I will fight my way through it. Anything for Joan of Arc. Absolutely. Well, I thank you for uh, being here today because I know we've both been looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, you might hear a little sniffle, a little cough, yeah. but I'll I'll make it. Well, it is that time of the year, so I'm pretty sure our listeners uh, understand, <laughs> and who knows, maybe some of them are going through the same thing. So, uh, right, right. With that though, let's go ahead and jump right into sharing an enchanted moment. Oh. Gosh. Do you want to go first? I think I went first last time. Okay, sure. Well, this week, my enchanted moment uh, has to do with a movie I watched. So I hope that's okay with, with everyone. Our, our enchanted moments can come in all different forms and disguises. So I watched a movie last night with my husband. It was It's an old movie, or I should say an older movie, First Night with Sean Connery. Oh and my. Richard Gere and, um, oh, the actress is, oh, Julia Ormond, beautiful, beautiful <laughs> actress. Um, but what I found so enchanting about that film and literally enchanting was uh, it is one of the, it's an Arthurian legend. So basically a take on, on uh, King, a King Arthur story. And the King Arthur stories, the Arthurian legends are just so full of, um, of, of Christian metaphors and themes yeah, they're and, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and it is beautiful. And and I, this movie, I have I've seen it before, never really paid attention to it. And last night, it just struck me with so much force how how much of the gospel is in this story. And you just have to read um, read into it. You know, King Arthur as as Christ, Guinevere as perhaps the Church, Lancelot um, just kind of representing every man and and how we have betrayed our Lord, uh, and how the Church has betrayed God time and time and again right. has, has gone has gone astray like uh, like an unfaithful wife, uh, as we read in the scriptures. Um, and yet uh, there's always mercy and forgiveness. And that's what you that's what you see in that story. So I was just really uh, delighted by that by that story. And even though it's a Hollywood film, and of course, um, you know, there's there's always things that, that we can criticize. But on the whole of it, I thought it was a very Christian message and very beautifully done. And it 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 brought me a little bit closer to the extraordinary world. Well, and they'll do that. We talk a lot of, on the show about, you know, I mean, story. That, and that's, again, why we're doing what we're doing. It's why we've chosen Mark Twain's is because story uh, tells, stories tell truth. Yes. Uh, even if sometimes through uh, the use of fiction or partial fiction mm-hmm. at, at times. And so they do speak to us, you know, in, in, in truth. So they're very, you know, very powerful. Yeah. Very powerful. Yes, indeed. Well, that's that's uh, that's wonderful. Well, I had a, a chanting moment that is maybe um, a little bit 
um, a little bit different, but we uh, had our, this past week, had our uh, parish mission, uh, Lenten mission yes. at, at the church. And um, it was, it was, it was really fascinating because it was on the Holy Family, but it was a little bit different than I thought it was going to be. And, and really what the Monsignor who came to do it focused on really were the hearts of the members of the family, the sacred heart of Jesus, the immaculate heart of Mary. And then of course, um, uh, Joseph's, uh, important role. And I, I found the whole thing to be truly me- mesmerizing mm. because I, I, I went in, <laughs> I went in expecting to be, you know, okay. You know, I've, I've been known Josie's had to occasionally, uh, you know, kind of punch me a little bit during homilies. Occasionally I've been known to kind of fade out. We, <laughs> we you know, sometimes I don't it know. Happens. About, it happens. That's why I keep trying to tell her is like, wake up. But, but the, you know, when, when you go in to hear somebody talk for 45 minutes or an hour, uh, it's hard to uh, maintain your concentration a lot. It's, it's hard not to get distracted or think of other things. And when the talks were, were going on, I was absolutely mesmerized. And I remember telling Josie when we left the first night, I said, you know, I don't think I missed a word he said. I, I absolutely uh, was, was amazed. So he truly, uh, he, through his voice, his stories, uh, just his whole demeanor really kept me uh, fascinated. And it kind of it pointed me to sort of the, the multidimensional way that we communicate, that it's not just through words, it's through how we present our words, how we carry ourselves. And, um, you know, it was able to really hold my attention. And of course, the topics were beautiful. And the resulting theology he presented was just, uh, you know, much of it, I think we knew if you've you know, studied your catechism, but he went to a length that was far greater than, than any of us. And, was, was there a particular idea that resonated with you? Well, yeah, something that I think we all know, but that and really thought about. He said, you know, you know, he went through, you know, Jesus as the divine. Of course, he pointed out a very interesting thing that a lot of us miss because he said, you know, we tend to think of Jesus as a human. He said, technically, he said, theologically, Jesus is a divine person. <laughs> he's, you know, he, he has a, he's a divine person with a human nature. And of course, the Blessed Virgin is purely a human, uh, is purely human. So he went through the whole hierarchy of, of devotion. But I think what was fascinating was he said was, you know, technically, St. Joseph being the least of the three, not being a divine person and not being in the uh, position of uh, hyperdulia, to use a, a fancy term, mm-hmm. yes. uh, devotion to the Blessed Virgin because of her magnificent place as the mother of God. But uh, that despite that, that both Jesus and Mary obeyed uh, Joseph. So yes, isn't that yeah, really, kind of mind blowing if you really I mean, and, and, you know, yeah. yeah, I mean, there, there, when we say uh, Joseph was the least of the three, we're, we're talking about pretty high bear, pretty high, pretty high uh, 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 markers here. Yeah, but uh, truly, when you look at Christ as a divine person with a human nature, the Blessed Virgin and her esteemed and singular place mm-hmm. uh, as the Mother of God, and then Saint Joseph, it did strike me that when when he said, but both Jesus and Mary obeyed Joseph, because that is the, that is the order of things. Exactly. Wow. That that, is, yeah. So instructive for us. <laughs> yeah. So it, yes, it was wow. very enchanting and very instructive. 
Wonderful. Well, by the time this episode airs, we will already be in the Easter season. Can you believe that, Walter? Oh, yeah, I know. This is uh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> All right. Well, We've got a lot going on in this one. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Okay, so let me begin with our heroic heart's prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O sacred heart of Jesus, form in us missionary hearts, hearts that burn to spread your faith, heroic hearts of the cross, wanting always and everywhere to bear witness to you. Make us ready to suffer to show our love. And like our sisters, St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese, grant us the desire to conquer for you all the hearts of the universe. Amen. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Well, last week, Walter, we ended with a couple of questions um, about the uh, theme of tests, allies, and enemies when our hero gets the first taste of the extraordinary world, is meeting and gathering allies, and has uh, the first memorable confrontations with, with an enemy or an opponent. Your question was about being given a position of honor or responsibility and how that ennobled and how that ennobles us. And so you, um, you asked us to describe how it made us feel and the impact it had on our life. Right. And then my question was about being outnumbered and, or, you know, facing the opposition and, and what that experience is like. So do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, my my question was really, I think, based, of course, on our favorite character, the paladin, uh, the person that drew me into the story. He's our uh, um, when our, our Wendy um, you know, braggart uh, that we all in, enjoy and continues to go along uh, with us in the, in the story. And I and I think what we saw last time was the way that uh, Joan actually chose him to ennoble him, and that in being ennobled. And being placed in positions a lot of times can have a very positive in, impact on us. And I know that I saw that when uh, I know when I switched out of my corporate uh, world and I went into the world of teaching and I was given uh, positions um, in, in teaching that allowed me to have a significant influence over, uh, you know, a, a number of different people. And it and it and it, it gave me, I, I guess, a sense of needing to make sure that I act with integrity. You know, it, it really gave me a sense that I, I need to be careful about uh, what I do, what I say, and whether I walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Because when you're dealing, particularly with a, a older and more adult students, uh, people can sniff out pretty easily if you're, yes. if you're not 100%. I mean, we, people are just that way. I used to tell people when I was in corporate management, you know, we used to, I used to be in the manufacturing field and you go out and you say, well, you know, the, your biggest mistake is to think that people working on the shop floor who maybe don't have much of an education, your biggest mistake is to think that they're not smart. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're all smart <laughs> and they'll pick up in two seconds. Uh, if, if you're not sincere they'll, and you're they'll not know if you're a phony, they'll know if you're a phony. And so I, you know, that's true in the corporate world, but particularly when you get up and you stand in front of groups of people and uh, what you realize is, I remember I saw a saying one time, and it was very true. I can't remember who, who said it, but I repeat it to my class. It said, you know, why do you teach? Why did you get into teaching? And I, you know, I tell them it's because of the esteemed company that it puts me in. Mm-hmm. And I took that from somebody. I don't remember who it was. But I say that it's, it's very true. And I think that if you remember when you get up and you instruct people that it is an honor to be in front of people. 
and that it is the esteemed company that you are in as you teach, then I think you have a foundation for teaching and for for reaching out. I I truly believe that being called to teaching is, is one of the highest callings. I, they're, they're just, there, there are a few things, uh, well, well, along with parenthood, but it's such a noble calling to be in a position of helping someone else develop their gifts, discover who they are, um, you know, give them some of the gift of knowledge. That's, that's it's, it's, it really is. I, I remember being in a class one time and it was not even an accounting or finance class, but we had to, we had to go over some uh, accounting material and I was explaining aspects of a financial statement to people. And I remember a, a, a woman in the back just exclaimed. She just sort of stepped back and she said, why didn't anybody tell me this before? <laughs> she, said, she said, I took accounting and nobody said this. And so it's when, you, when, you're, when you're able to uh, present material in a way yeah. that the light bulb comes on for people. Yeah. It's an honor. Uh, because and then one, one final note, then we'll move on is that I've had the opportunity to sit on stage watching students cross the stage to receive their diplomas and, and realizing that you were only one instructor or some of them I might've had two or three times, uh, in different courses, but that you played a role that, you, you know, you played a small role, but you played a role in that person. You watch the family cheering and you, you watch the tears how happy they are that they finally accomplished getting their college degree. And you realize that I played just a small role. I I got to play a small (laughs) role in that. That's a real honor. That's a real honor. Yes, it it certainly is. And if anyone out there is a teacher or instructor of some sort, we just want to, we just want to thank you for your vocation to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, you said, Amy, have you ever felt outnumbered by your opposition? You were in the military. So (laughs) what what, what, tell us about that? Give us some battle stories. Oh, oh gosh. I, uh, I hadn't thought of any battle stories in relation to that though. I, I suppose I could. Um, yeah, no, actually I, I have felt outnumbered. I've been, I've been on a combat deployment, uh, well, my last one where I just knew that my perspective of the situation and the way we were responding to it was different from everyone else's. And, and I didn't delight in the destruction of the enemy. And and that set me apart um, from some of my peers. Um, And it was lonely, you know, because because I was sad. It wasn't that I I thought we were um, not there to do a good mission, but I I was sorrowful that it had to be done, if that makes sense. Well, it puts you in line with Joan of Arc because Joan didn't like that either. We we haven't reached the, the point in the story yet, but the famous point later in her career there where she holds the head of a dying English soldier yeah, and uh, prays and hears uh, his confe- uh, confession. She, you know, she did not enjoy seeing the enemy hurt. She gave the enemy an opportunity to go home. Yeah. Um, so I know. Just so grand of her. So, so noble. Yeah. Yeah. You certainly share that with Joan. Mm-hmm. Well, well, let's let's talk a little bit about um, this part of the story. So we've uh, the past few episodes we've been talking about the hero's journey motif, and it's been building up to our hero entering into this extraordinary world and facing a big challenge. So this part 
this part of the stage is, is, um, has been called Approaching the Innermost Cave, and that comes from author Christopher Vogler, who wrote a book called The Writer's Journey, which is pretty much about what we've been talking about. And this is where the hero approaches the center of the plot, and this, this often coincides with the center of the extraordinary world, too. So like you can think of Sam and Frodo as they are going down into Mordor. Um, and so there's like this, this idea that, that you're, you're reaching kind of a culmination point. Uh, for us, and, and looking at the heroic's heart journey, Joan is now in the position to face the English army as she prepares to raise the siege of Orleans. And um, it's the uh, this is the last remaining vestige of of French support and French nationalism and loyalty to the Dauphin. So this is this is a critical juncture in the story and an exciting one. And and so well, we're going to talk about a, it. Yeah, it's exactly what what you just described. Where where this is a, uh, analogous to exactly what you described in the, in the hero's journey. This is the moment. Now, there, now there are going to be several m- moments. I, I would say, you know, the 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 big moments in Joan's life are sort of bimodal or trimodal. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there, yeah. there are several. But th- this far and away is, uh, you know, the the big the big moment. We're coming upon the, the week, or I should say, a little over a week. This is a very historic sort of week and a half. From April 29th through May 8th. And, and I want to point out that just coincidentally, this episode is going to air just right around that time. So our <laughs> our listeners that are listening to this as it comes out, you're going to be living that week along with Joan. Yeah. So this we're coming up on the big week of the big battle, or we should say a series of battles. Yes. Leading to the freeing of Orléans, which is the turning point really it 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 left a a it 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 damaged the english efforts so much that they could never recover so the, it it the war wasn't over at that right, point. right. it damaged their efforts beyond repair and so this is the week and there's so many uh, unbelievable stories that happen during this week so we should get kind of get going we also get introduced to a couple of uh, a, a, a more key characters. Yeah. Well, why don't you start by letting us know about those characters and then we'll talk yeah. about the action. Well, they're there. Now, if you remember uh, in, in the previous episode, we brought in the Duke of Alençon, uh, which was of the blood Royal. Who and, had been in exile, right? Who had been in exile mm-hmm. and he came back and, and truly uh, took a, a liking and, and admiration of Joan right away and trained her. And he was truly an, an ally and, um, uh, and, and always at, at, at her side. Now, there are two other people that come in at this point. Now, don't forget, we're not in Orléans yet. We are, we're moving to Blois, which is where, uh, it's, it's, which is kind of a third of the way up the river toward Orléans. So they've been in Chinon, where they, the king is, or the Dauphin. Yeah. yeah, the Dauphin is. And the army's going to be assembled in Blois, which is about a third of the way up the river toward Orléans. We've got the Sword of St. Catherine, uh, from the uh, from the church, and uh, we're going to be moving to assemble uh, the army. She has her standard, and um, she's put her house together, uh, you know, and, and and all that. Now, uh, when she gets up to Blois, she we're, we're going to be introduced to uh, what what in French you might say the name would be La Hire. Uh, most of us are used to just saying it in the English term, which is La Hire, which is what it looks like. <laughs> so I'll just go ahead and use the English term if people don't mind of uh, La Hire. Now, La Hire is a, a rough and tumble, notorious hero of 
French warrior. So. I, I just love how Twain describes him. It's so colorful. I mean, he's clearly one of the good guys, but to, oh. to hear it said, he's like, he's like a bat out of hell. You know? He's, oh, yeah. He's, oh, wait, yeah. Twain refers to him as <laughs> Satan himself. Satan, yeah. And, and, his, and his army was littered in hell. And, you know, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah, he, he gives such a colorful explanation of, of, of Lahire, you know, when, when, you know, when, and I always love the description that when Lahire comes on the scene, he's the way he straightened his army out. He's one of these guys that just takes the, the butt end of his sword and just knocks a guy in the head, <laughs> you know, it's so a, you straighten up and just smashes him to the ground and, and he knows how to put his team in, in order. He'll just... He'll yes. Just, uh, yeah, yes. So he's, he's a really rough and tumble. He's he's well known by the English, and in fact, some people think that the name Lahire was given to him by uh, uh, the, the English. And so he's he's not nobility, but he uh, and I believe he came into the service of Charles the Seventh around mm-hmm. around fourteen eighteen, I think, not long after the Battle of Agincourt. So we're now in fourteen twenty nine, and so this has been ten years that he's been serving uh, Charles. And so he is the opposite. So as Twain describes in the chapter, when the army sees uh, Joan and, and Lahire coming, they'll say, oh, it's it's Satan and the page of Christ coming together. <laughs> and uh, what, what a contrast those two must have made. Oh, ex- exactly. And so uh, Lahire comes into the, the, the stage and he's immediately taken by uh, by Joan of Arc. And, 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 th- and this certainly, though, there's colorful storytelling by Mark Twain, but this certainly fits the the history because he became a very devoted he, he was very devoted the, the characters mm-hmm. that we're bringing in now mm-hmm. are are really people that Joan could trust to the nth degree to always have her back that are truly you know on the side of the Armagnac the Charles VII and are are truly going to be trusted mm-hmm. and so she she brings him in and and uh, you know so he comes in and he's pretty rough and tough. And, but here's, here's an important, very important thing. Very true. So now imagine, look, look at everything's Joan, Joan's done. It's this young girl. Just won't have to go through everything that we've talked about. But my goodness, fighting through enemy territory, getting to the king, addressing Charles VII, the whole thing. Now she meets probably the toughest, baddest person in yeah. the French army. Yeah. Cuss, you know, like Twain says, cussing all the time. Like he doesn't know how to speak unless he's cursing <laughs> and uh, he's not a, he's not a religious person or anything. Here's little Joan, 17 years old, has no fear of, of, of telling Lahire and the, and this rough uh, army. So, so the armies out there, they have no discipline, uh, loose women and, you know, following the army as they did in medieval times, they got the loose women the drinking, the carousing, Lahire has to just, you just, know, knock yeah. them in the head to get them in order. Total lack of good order and discipline is what we exactly. call it today. Exactly. Now, Joan comes in and tells Lahire that uh, this is going to change. And what are they going to do? Now, now, imagine you just go into an army where it's just, they're all in a bar and they're just drinking and wow. fighting in a bar. And you walk in and you say, you all are going to go to mass. I, I have imagined this very specifically from my experience uh, with with military. <laughs> Almost unthinkable. Like you just couldn't it, imagine it happening. It, it really is, and and this is not a romantic Twainism. I mean, she she really did this, and she said this is how it's going to be. And she said the army will confess, and everybody will attend services. And, and why did she say that? 
she, she didn't want anybody to die having not confessed her sins. Yeah. They, they, they were, you know, all, all well-intentioned. So naturally Lahire is, you know, in the position of he's, I don't, he's, he wasn't prepared to hear such a thing. He didn't know that anybody would say such a thing. And so he said, well, I, I don't know, but he finally, he finally understands. And he, after a while, he, he agrees that he'll talk to him and, and, you know, and he'll, he'll, he said, I can't guarantee what they're going to do, but you know, I'll try. But then she's got another surprise for him. She says, you're going to go to mass too. <laughs> Which was almost the last straw for him. Yeah. Me telling the army, I have to go, that's a joke enough right there, but you're telling me to go. And she said, and she said, yes. And so, uh, and, and he, he finally, you know, kind of hemmed the halls around, but before he leaves, she makes him pray. And he, he's dumbfounded because he doesn't even know how to pray. And um, the prayer that he says, which, you know, as, as Twain says in his book is in the French National Archives, it's been copied by other people. But this is a real prayer that has been in the, in the French National Archives is this, uh, this beautiful prayer where he says he finally he doesn't know what to do. So I don't know how to pray. And so, well, you got to pray anyway. So he says, fair sir God, I pray you do by Lahire as he would do by you if you were Lahire <laughs> and he were God. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and, that and he walks out proud of himself. And Mark Twain <laughs> says that he, he is the sewer comes up and he, he walks and he hears Joan uh, apparently crying. He's afraid <laughs> she's hurt inside the tent. And he wonders what happened in that meeting. And he goes in and he's finds out she's not crying. She's laughing. She's about dying she, of laughter Yeah, she, <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's just such a funny, yeah, but, but such a funny it, concept. <laughs> but this is, I mean, but this is really a, a true situation that she did. Now what she did do and in, in, in real life, she insisted there'll be no loose women. The, 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 the women have to go. The carousing has to go. You'll confess. Now, now beyond just that, what is she really saying? She's saying that in order to succeed, in order to truly have God's blessing to go into these battles, you must be well-ordered. You must, you know, she really wanted her army to be in a state of grace, to be well-ordered. Yeah. Because otherwise we couldn't expect. To purify themselves and, to, yeah, and, exactly. and humble themselves before, before their well, God. And, and when she marched, she had with her priests that would be singing the Veni Creator mm. uh, as, as they went. So it was oh. a very, a, very much a religious thing. So that's Lahire. And, and he does a, you know, she, she really kind of does a number on him. And it's a hilarious story, but it's also very true. But she sets the tone. But one thing she did do, she earned Lahire's respect. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like when you get his respect and the army sees that, that he, she's earned well, the, his respect. The army and the other generals and captains. Yes. Yeah. Right. And, and he's definitely one of those that is, you know, if you don't like it, I'll come smash you over the head, but this is what you're going to do. Okay. So now we're heading up uh, the river. So we've got the army situated at Blah. We're heading up the river. Now there's another uh, critical and, and famous story with Joan of Arc is we're going to get to our second character that you mentioned. Lahire is the first one. And we're going to get up the river to Orléans where we have Jean de Dunois. Now who is Dunois? 
Well, Dunois is intricately <laughs> involved in this whole thing. Dunois is the uh, called the bastard of Orleans. The bastard is how the I imagine him saying it in French. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and as I'm sure the I'm sure the listeners probably probably know <laughs> uh, bastard in back in the medieval times was not uh, the kind of word that we use now. In fact, mm-hmm. it was actually a word that indicated uh, a certain form of nobility. Uh, so in, in the days of, of Christendom and royalty, uh, it mattered whether you were a pure heir when it came to titles mm-hmm. and thrones and, and land, or whether you were maybe a par- partial heir. So uh, Dunois was a, a illegitimate son of Louis the First, who was the Duke of Orleans, who was the brother of Charles the Sixth, the Mad King, who was Ch- uh, Charles the Seventh's father. Okay. So, so this is what's this is Dunois is in the middle of this whole civil war because it was that you know reflecting back real quickly on on the civil war, Charles' father, King Charles the Sixth, was the Mad King. Okay, that's what precipitated all the problems. His brother, Louis, in Orléans, somebody had to run France. <laughs> somebody had to figure out what to do with France because the king was in and out of phases. He, he couldn't operate. Well, his brother in Orléans was trying to you know take that control. But his cousin in Burgundy, the Prince of Burgundy, John the Fearless, also, who was a powerful prince in Burgundy, also wanted to take that control. And that led to a feud between them and ultimately the assassination of Louis the First in oh. by John the Fearless. Louis the First was uh, Jean de Dunois' uh, father, um, even though he was it was an illegitimate mm-hmm. uh, out of wedlock. And, and of, so that uh, that murder was what plunged France into the Civil War. That, right? that that murder was ultimately what plunged France into the War of Burgundy versus the Armagnacs who support. Right. And then uh, later, actually, John the Fearless himself was assassinated in retribution. In which case, his son Philip who plays a prominent role going forward mm-hmm. uh, in, in this. Philip of Burgundy blames Charles for that assassination. Right. So it's like so the th- French is, Hatfield and McCoys. Oh, this is this is going on. <laughs> this is what's yeah. creating the problems in France. Well, John de Dunois, well, he's right in the middle of that. He is the bastard son of, of, of Louis. So clearly he's on the side of Charles VII. He, his devotion is, uh, you know, is... is is without a doubt. Now he and Lahire, so he's over in Orléans. He and Lahire are not new to each other. They've been fighting together for probably 10, 10 years. So uh, Dunois has a you know pretty illustrious record and he continued after Joan of Arc, uh, even up into Normandy, he continued to have a, a record. So th- they know each other. The, Lahire and Dunois have worked together. They've, they've lifted sieges, sieges before. They fought the English together. So they're both uh, seasoned. So we mm-hmm. pick up Lahire in Blois and we start moving up the river. And we're going to meet Dunois in one of my favorite <laughs> moments ever. But, but, but as we go up there, here's the big thing. And this is going to prove to be uh, a significant event that, that everyone talks about. Uh, and it really speaks to the fact that, you know, have we really connected between the French captains and Joan yet? I don't think so. Have, have they really, do they really understand what they have and, and you know, what, what the deal is that Joan 
it, in a sense, they're still working to undermine her because they don't trust her her knowledge or her authority. They they are well, still you know pat, um, patronizing her. Yeah, I, uh, definitely they're patronizing her. Now again, let's let's kind of remember. I I, I kind of like to be the devil's advocate. Yeah. Uh, to a certain degree, I like to be a devil's advocate because how easy would it be for you? Uh, as a seasoned veteran to just hand over the reins to a 17 year old um, country girl and just expect, you know, that these, these miracles are going to happen. So, there, and, and also think about yourself. I'd ask the listeners to think about ourselves, even when confronted with something as po- a powerful event in our lives, how easy is it for us to change our thinking? Mm-hmm. How easy is it for us to change our ways? So they naturally are still in their old way of thinking. Now, what's their way of thinking? You don't well, it's fight the English. Cautious. <laughs> <laughs> it's very cautious. You don't fight the English head on. Uh, what you have to do is starve them out until they leave, and and that's basically what uh, their strategy is. What's Joan's strategy? Is you just march? I have an army. We're going to go march, and we're going to go destroy the enemy. Yeah, and like, I have God there, on my side, so why not? <laughs> there's, there's no hesitation. Joan expects literally to march the army to Orleans and just take on the English and free the city and it's done. And that's not what, you know, the, the uh, captains think that's probably not a really good idea. Uh, it's going to destroy the army. And, and so she's kind of a, they see value and Mark Twain points this out. There's value in having Joan to them because she's, she's kind of like a nice figurehead. She inspires the army. She's a nice figurehead, but we can't really let her run the army. I mean, for crying out loud. Uh, it doesn't mean they're not sincere or they don't have a real like, it doesn't mean that Lahire's attachment to Joan is not Mm -hmm. real, but they they just haven't really grasped the significance. And so really nobody has this point. So my point in all that is where do they lead her? Now uh, picture the Loire river. There's the North side, which is, uh, you know, toward the English occupied and the South side. Okay. the, The city itself sits sort of on the North side of the river. And that's they, the English do have some Bastilles on the south side of the river to to kind of keep, you know, uh, any communications. Mm-hmm. But effectively, the city is, Bas- is Bastilled and, and sieged on the north side of the river. John wants to go up the north side of the river and go take on the English. Where do they lead her? On the south side of the, the river. Yeah. <laughs> so that so that they don't have to confront the, the English. She finds out and she's not happy at all. And that's not what she was thinking. Well, here comes Dunois from Orléans to come out to greet her. And for the first he was in time, a, right? Yeah, for the first time. So he was in on it too because they kind of notified Dunois and said, hey, by the way, she wants to come and just like walk right into the English. We don't think that's a good idea. And he, Dunois, said, don't do that. Come up the south side of the river and we'll deal with it later. Well, she was not happy with being tricked. And I love the story. And as far as I can tell, reading history, it's it's quite, I think, quite accurate. Because when Dunois comes out of Orléans to greet her, she, she's kind of, she's unhappy. Now, most of us think when we're going to meet somebody important. So he knows she's important because not only is she this, this mystical maid they keep talking about, but also she's been sent by Charles. Yeah. She has the official decree of Charles. So this is an important person. So normally, wouldn't we kind of come out and say, hey, it was very nice to meet you. It's really great to have you. And why don't you come on in and we'll talk and there wouldn't there be some pleasantries and then you would go (laughs) in and talk and then perhaps you'd get down to Mm -hmm. the business. 
So he comes out he's, and she, she asks me, she says, are you the bastard? And he says, yes, and I'm very pleased to meet you. And she just tears into it. Yeah. So She's like, but was this your, you know, <laughs> was this your doing? Did you recommend this? this? Your, yeah. Were you in on this? Was this your doing? I mean, he's just caught having to stammer around. And and so it was, it was a, Dunois has his head handed to him on a platter the minute he runs into Jonah, to Jonah. Yeah. And he learns that she's not somebody to uh, mess around with. Now, Joan, and, and here's a really critical part. And I don't know that listeners, when you read Mark Twain, if you really pick up on it. But one of the most important things in, in the whole story and in Dunois' life happens right at this moment. She's tearing into him. And she says, by the way, we have provisions and food and supplies for the city. And we can't even get it there. Because of your great, you and your, your blunder, yeah, right. You're the great minds of the French army made a decision, um, and um, and the wind is blocking the way. So the wind was not cooperating, and they couldn't get the boats up the river. And she made a reference to praying that God would, uh, you know, change that uh, into his well, hands. Yeah, the only way though those boats could reach them is if the wind changed. Exactly, and you know what happened right after that was the wind changed. And the boats were able to move down the river and get to uh, the one gate, which was on the east side that was open to them, the, the, the Burgundy Gate, and to get the supplies in. And so the changing of the wind, now that doesn't, when you read the story, it doesn't sound like uh, a lot, but it actually had a huge impact on Dunois. When you read the uh, story of the, re, the trial of rehabilitation 25 years later, when Dunois was testifying, 25 years later, he said, it was the changing of the wind. He said that he said never got over the changing of the wind. It was it was a spiritual moment. It was it was a it may seem small to a lot of us, mm-hmm. but it was the moment when he became a believer. Yeah, when he truly converted in in heart. Was and the there's something there's something so poetic about that the changing of the wind and the changing of hearts and the changing of the um, of, of all the opposition and, and the atmosphere. Of, of demoralization, all of that changed when Joan arrived. Oh, uh, yes. And that's, that's really part of a, of a larger theme. And, and so, you know, Dunois runs into a, a real buzzsaw and, uh, but there was that moment when the wind changed and that was a big moment of conversion uh, for him. Now, now what happens now? Okay. So Joan says, well, how are we going to fix this problem? Well, guess what? There's no way to fix it, but send the army all the way back to Blois. Can you imagine the humiliation? It was a humiliating moment for Dunois, mm-hmm. who is, by the way, running the city. And he is, by the way, the cousin of, 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 of Charles. And it was a humiliating moment. So the army now has to march back to Blois so they can come up the proper side like Joan wants on the north side. Mm-hmm. And so the army goes back. And she keeps like a thousand people, a thousand uh, men at arms. And she and Dunois and Lahire go into Orléans to a great celebration because they're happy to see her. And uh, meanwhile, the army. So now what we have to do is we have to wait a few days for the army to come back. So there's a lot of different things that happen during those days that she now has to wait. She's frustrated because in her mind, the siege should have been lifted that day. Right. Just over and done with. Now we have to kind of wait around. So, now we get into Joan waiting in Orléans, waiting for the army to come back. She sends, she has a letter, and I won't read the whole thing. It's actually quite lengthy. But 
when you read it, uh, it's, it's, I think it's accurately stated in, in Twain's book. Um, she wrote it in Poitiers and she had it sent when she was in Blois to the English, but it is a remarkable letter. And it, um, basically what she says in the letter to the English, and this is very indicative of Joan. She says, um, leave. Essentially what the letter says is leave and you won't be harmed. Go home and, and return all the lands that you've taken. So give everything back, go home Yeah, and we're done here. Well, uh, we've got a little bit of the letter here in, in Twain's story. And we want to remind our listeners that she was, of course, uneducated and could not read or write. So this was dictated. But you can hear you can hear the passion of her voice coming through in this dictation. So she says, Jesus Maria, King of England, and you, Duke of Bedford, who call yourself a regent of France, William de la Pole, Earl of Suffolk, and you, Thomas, Lord Scales, who style yourselves lieutenants of the said Bedford, do write to the King of Heaven, render to the maid who is sent by God the keys of all the good towns you have taken and violated in France. She is sent hither by God to restore the blood royal. She is very ready to make peace if you will do her right by giving up France and paying for what you have held. I mean, she just puts it out there. <laughs> oh, she, she, she does. And, and it's not the only time she, she does that, but it's a remarkable letter. And she goes on to say that if you don't, that basically I'm going to come at you in a way that France has, has not seen in a thousand years. Yeah. I mean, she, Extraordinary. She, she says, yeah. She says, I'm, I'm coming at you in a way that, that in the last millennium has never been seen yeah. before. Yeah. But if you basically leave and give back everything, everything's good and we can all be friends. So it's, it's truly now, now what was the English response to that? Oh my, do you think they went for it? They didn't. The English basically responded and, uh, we using not, not particularly good language. When you look at the actual, uh, uh, they referred to her in terms that are probably not appropriate. Sure. Um, in, in our podcast and they told her to go back to uh herding Being a milkmaid or something yeah go yeah. back and herd sheep yeah so they they obviously laughed at it and uh, that was probably a bad uh, a bad move so she sends that while she's out while she's waiting and uh, but another big event happened while she's waiting for the army to come back uh, uh, some of the people in and, and a few a few of the people that were in the army she brought in and some of the townsfolk got a little ahead of themselves. Everybody's getting really riled up now. I mean, now you can imagine that there, there's this pent-up energy of people who have been under siege. And they run out on the east side of Orléans is the Bastille of St. Luke. St. Luke. It looks like St. Luke, but St. Luke. Uh, they go out of the one gate that they have open to them, the Burgundy Gate, and they attack the, the Bastille of St. Luke. And it's not going well for them. Mm. And they are easily repelling them. Joan somehow hears about this and says, my goodness, French blood is spilling. And she flies into action to really save what's going on. And she arrives on the scene with uh, more of her army and, and they push the English back into the, the Bastille. Now, Dunois comes and says, typical English, I mean, typical French fashion. Good job, Joan. You've pushed the English back into the Bastille. 
let's go back into the city and people will be talking about what a heroic job you did. And she says, what do you, what do you mean? We're going to take the best. We're going to finish this. Yeah, we're going to finish this. Let's go. Sound the trumpet. Sound the advance. Yeah. He said, well, oh, okay. So they, they, they then go and take the Bastille. And that was the first Bastille that they, that they took. Now, um, from, now from, from there, they're going to advance a little bit further. So we're not quite yet at the, at the big battle that will ultimately free all We've got another one to go. Now, in the meantime, Another very interesting thing is happening. The army's coming back. Well, she sends Dunois down there because she finds out, lo and behold, that Charles's advisors can't be trusted. Wow, there's a news flash for shocker. you. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a shocker. So um, she sends Dunois down because uh, Charles's advisors are trying to dismantle the army and Blois. Uh, so they're backstabbing and doing all the things that that they do. Dunois goes down to keep everything in order. Now the army's coming back and Dunois is coming back with the army. And a most interesting thing happens. Now remember that the, that they did not want to come up the north side of the river because they didn't want to confront the English. They, they didn't want to walk right into the English. Now this, this would seem like, isn't something big going to happen here? And this has been noted by other historians. And I mentioned Vita Sackville-West because I, I read her book some time ago. And she couldn't get over it. Mm-hmm. The army just quietly and just methodically marched right past the English. The English sat there and watched them. They never sortied from the Bastilles. They never fired a shot. They didn't do a thing. It was almost as if some lethargy had come over the English. And it was, uh, you know, you wonder about the hand of, of God in, in, in that. You know, Beta Sackville West in her book just says, she says it's just unthinkable. Yeah. There, there's no way to imagine that the English would not have seen this as an opportunity to just destroy the French army. Because right they, were, they were completely exposed. They were just, they were exposed. And yet the army just went right by. And it's, it's, it's a noted historic event that has baffled people and, and historians. And yet, don't doubt Joan. When Joan says she wants to, this is the way it's going to go, that's, that's the way it's going to go. So now the army uh, has come back. Okay, so where are we? We're in Orleans. She's had to wait because of the, the, the mess up by the captains, and they had to send the army back to Blois. Now the army's come back. Now, in the meantime, she sent the message to the English. They're not going to leave. They told her in no uncertain terms how they felt about her letter. And uh, the, the townspeople and the army got a little bit rambunctious and decided to go attack one of the Bastilles themselves. So she had to clean that up and ends up being a victory, the first victory for Joan. Now what they do is they plan, uh, <clears throat> they go around and they plan on the south side of the river how they're going to take those. And so ultimately what they do uh, they circle around on the south side and they end up taking the Bastille of the Augustans. And that is the main stronghold just before you get to the big prize, Les yes. Tourelles. <laughs> and that is the Bastille that sits on the river that blocks the passage into Orleans. And when you see the movies about the Battle of... Uh, People think of the Battle of Orléans as that one battle that we're not at yet. We're going to get to it next time. Is the Battle of Les Tourelles. 
And it's really the battle for just one of the Bastilles, the final Bastille. So let's make a few observations about where we are. Um, we're going to get into the, the great battle of Le Terrell next time. So we've, we've made progress. We've had some initial victories at, at Orléans. Today, we've introduced a couple of key characters, Lahire and Dunois, that have, have uh, joined with uh, Joan. We've seen some of the miraculous uh, events that have taken place, you know, coming up the north side of the river and uh, the, you know, the, the victory at San Lu. And I want to make a little comment, though, about just overall the, an impression that you get uh, at least I get when I look at Joan during this series of, of chapters and a series of events, you know, Joan seems to not just be a figurehead inspiration to the army. She really is a, a source of, of order and, and a source of, of right order. So if you look back, she does take somebody like the paladin and she elevates the paladin to a position of nobility she takes someone like Lahire and, and smooths the rough edges off of Lahire. She brings order to the army and brings, you know, brings discipline, mm-hmm. not just uh, military, but spiritual discipline. And, and gives courage and, and, to someone like Dunois and, and those forces yes. that have been demoralized by the French, uh, by the English. It, yes. Gives inspiration to, uh, you know, a key person like Dunois. And also look at what she did at San Lu when the people, uh, uh, ran out. She she kind of uh, uh, mastered that exuberance that they had. You know, you know how it is when you lead people. You love to see the energy and the exuberance, but sometimes they don't know how to handle it. And so she had that sort of ability then to sort of manage that exuberance and turn it turn what could have been foolishness into something that was productive. So when you really watch her through this series of, of events, she's doing far more than being a figurehead. You know, she's she's really bringing a sense of, of, of defining what this army is, is going to look like. So this wonderful person who has that kind of influence uh, over an army has brought us to the point where we're only a day away in this great week from the 29th of April to May 8th. So we're kind of up to about May 6th at this point. But May 7th, something big's going to happen. And that's what we're going to talk about next time. And on that note, then, let's take a look at our questions for this week and our homework for next week. So we've been talking about approaching the the battle. Uh, and we've seen Joan um, leading the forces up to that critical moment. So, Walter, why don't you read for us the question that corresponds to that for you? Sure. The question, the question that I have, Amy, uh, goes back to that change in the wind uh, that we talked about with uh, Dunois, when it seems like a very small moment in the story, but it actually had a huge influence on one of the main characters in the story. And so my question is, is, is really around recalling that change in, in the wind that forever impressed uh, Dunois. Mm-hmm. Describe a time when something very ordinary, typical, or otherwise of little account happened to you in such a way that it changed your life? Is there, do you have a time when something relatively, I don't know, it seems small, maybe insignificant, but had a huge impact on your life? There was a moment of, uh, you know, of illumination. 
You know, what's the connection between this ordinary event in your life that made it such a powerful moment? So I'm asking the uh, listeners to, to kind of journal about that a little bit. Have you had a moment like that? Oh man. Yeah. I've been, I have to tell you, Walter, as we've been going through this podcast, I've really looked back on my own life. It's, it's caused me to reflect more on the story of my life, not just the disconnected events, but, you know, crafting a a narrative that pulls all those events together. And like you're saying, if there's a change in the wind, what did that change mean? Isn't, Isn't that true where you have little adjustments well, you were in the Navy, and we always hear about uh, boats. The rudder is so small, but it changes the, the, yeah. the way that the entire ship goes. Yep. And little things like that that can just make huge changes in your life. Yeah, yeah. So and you had one too. Yes. My question is, when the time comes to approach the great contest of your life, will you face it with fear or with that battle joy that Joan displays on the battlefield? Oh boy. Yeah. I, I, you know, I can't help but think of when the sewer is talking about coming up the North side of the river and crossing right in front of the uh, English, Mm -hmm. how terrifying that must've been. Um, you know, would we have the courage to, you know, take on a challenge like that? Yes. Yes. And to be so exposed and just have to trust. Well, Lots of good stuff, and it is not going to slow down. So again, it's hard to keep up with it all at this point. I hope the listeners have at least been able to see some of the key, uh, you know, aspects of of getting us up to this important battle. Yes, yes. And so for next week, we're going to read book two. We're still in book two, chapters twenty-one through thirty. 21 through 30. So um, a, a lot of chapters, but they go pretty quickly. Twain keeps the action going. The chapters aren't so very long and it's just really good storytelling. So we hope you're able to read along with us. And if not, um, you can still join us here again next week. Well, we, we have the the final big moment of freeing Orleans. Then we're going to, I think we're, we're going to have to crown a king in there somewhere. And so... <laughs> There's still even that that won't be the end of it. No, no, there's still much of the journey to complete. And we do want to uh, encourage our listeners to come back again to hear the next part of this exciting story. No story never ends because here we are in uh, the current year doing a podcast on Joan and telling her story. So it never ends. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Walter. And thanks to our listeners. And once again, embrace this journey, guys, because you were born for this. So we'll sign off for now, but stick around for Amy reading our closing poem. Thanks for listening. If you want to discover enchantment and adventure with St. Joan and St. Therese, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us at heroic-hearts.com. February Afternoon by Edward Thomas Men heard this roar of parlaying starlings, saw a thousand years ago, even as now, black rooks with white gulls following the plow, so that the first are last, until a caw commands that last are first again, a law which was of old when one, like me, dreamed how a thousand years might dust lie on his brow, yet thus would birds do between hedge and shaw, 
Time swims before me, making as a day a thousand years, while the broad plowland oak roars mill-like, and men strike and bear the stroke of war as ever, audacious or resigned, and God still sits aloft in the array that we have wrought him, stone deaf and stone blind. <laughs>